1: And now he brings you even closer to the movers and shakers in the world of high echelon tournament water skiing. From the founder and creator of the Water Ski Broadcasting Company comes the TWBC Podcast. And now here's your host, Tony Lightfoot.
0: Welcome to the TWBC podcast and thank you once again for listening. With the 2021 Swiss Pro Slalom event just around the corner, it would be expected that Slalom takes center stage. However, With these next two episodes, I've decided to change things up a little by presenting to you one of the greatest athletes from the jumping event. Freddy Krueger has essentially redefined the event of water ski jumping as we know it, and he has been among the top flyers since 1995, well over a quarter of a century. On top of that, he remains the only skier to have flown over 300 feet of level ground. I was fortunate enough to be able to interview him during the recent Mastercraft Pro Clinic at Bennett's Woloski School. We took up quite a bit of time with this one, so I split this interview off into a two-part episode, which I'm sure you'll enjoy. I'll catch up with you after this episode, so sit back and enjoy this first of a two-part interview with Freddy Krueger. Okay, Freddy Krueger, welcome you're here at uh, Tri Lakes for the uh, the Mastercraft uh, Pro Coaching Clinics. Uh, also, also sponsored uh, by uh, by Bennett's uh, uh, Water Ski School. And I was here yesterday, and I was so, and I was watching you coach and instruct uh, people that have come here for this clinic. And what really struck me is that you have a real passion for this. It 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 would it would appear that would appear to be the case.
2: Well, I think um, I want to be careful on how I answer that, right? Because I'm, um, you know, I don't walk around all day dreaming about coaching skiing. That's, you know, it's uh, I love skiing. What I love doing more than anything is, you know, coming to a facility like this where the people are definitely, you know, they're here because they're passionate about their jumping. And so we have this opportunity to, to spend time together and and go through that. And so I want to match their energy and their excitement. Um, you know, and I feel like, uh, you know, again, this group, they've, they've taken a lot of time out and and energy and effort to come here. So I want to make sure that I'm giving them all the attention and and effort they deserve. So, um, you know, and and I think our energies play off of each other. So as they get more excited, you know, so do I.
0: Okay. So, I mean, working along the coaching theme, uh, you've, Obviously, not the first time you've been here. Uh, you you came here in the middle, uh, early part of the nineteen nineties, uh, and received coaching and tutelage by the one, the only Jay Bennett. Uh, how how much of what you've learnt there have you been able to kind of transfer a, a, a little bit to to the students whom you were 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 coaching?
2: Well, I think the you know the foundational part of it is is very much still the same. Um, you know, I think that's what you know. If you look at the at the beauty of Jay's system, it's hundred um, percent built on the foundations, the the core principles of the sport. Um, but he, he delivers it in a in a simple way. And you know, there's always that scenario where uh, you know you, you hear the same thing from someone day after day after day. Somebody somebody else is saying something to, you. essentially, it's exactly the same concept, but they're saying it in a slightly different way, and bang, it clicks with you, right? So, um, you know, and I, I, again, I think that's one of the beauties of Jay's facility is he's he's got multiple coaches here, right? Like, he's always kind of watching over it and going through, um, but again, from that foundational start, I mean, you know, I think I think some people think that the, the further you go in, in your skiing or in anything, the more complex that it has to become and and yes you know you're 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 diving deeper and deeper and deeper into the the smallest little details in an effort to perfect your your trade if you will but at the end of the day the all those little details that you're diving into are still always about those core fundamentals right like the you know the swing, the the relationship with the boat, how where you need to be standing on your skis to handle the ramp. None of that has really ever changed. Um, you know, has the sport progressed? Yes. Has it changed considerably with skis and ramps and and, and boats and power and knowledge? Absolutely. But in, at the end of the day, it still comes down to those core fundamental principles that we all learned of knees, trees, and freeze. Right? Like they're all still there. That's what we're building our houses on.
0: Absolutely. And you touched upon. Uh, progr- uh... Progression of equipment and of uh, technique, and you're probably one of only two com- two competitors <laughs> in the entire world that actually won events on short jump skis and are still around winning events on long jump skis. So you, uh, aside from who was the other competitor, I'm, I'm sure you know his name, don't you, Mr. Scotty? Mr. Scotty, the Rocket yeah. Man Ellis, and he he can maybe talk to this as well, but what what has been the most significant thing that has happened to the sport of water ski jumping what what has made the most impact has it been techniques or has it been technique based upon equipment has it been solely equipment kind of speak to that a little
2: well i think i mean for sure the biggest change the biggest improvement in our sport um i i i would have to say that it's it's the skis it's you know when um you go back to the um, it would have been around that 95 worlds uh, I know that you know again Ron Goodman was one of the early people playing with the larger skis uh, Bruce Neville and uh, was uh, working with Russell gay uh, at Exocet and I think Bruce showed up I wasn't at that 95 worlds but you know Bruce kind of got a lot of the attention as he won that world championships on a massive pair of 84 in skis yeah and that so, was in
0: Rockbrune, wasn't it in France
2: yeah and so there was kind of an explosion out of that time after that. But I mean, even if you go back earlier than that, Jeff Carrington, you know, he showed up at some pro tour events with, uh, I, you know, they were probably only 76 inches long, but they were almost as wide as trick skis. So, you know, there were guys that were pushing the boundaries in terms of what the skis, how the, the ski equipment could help. Um, but if you look at what what has happened and this is one of the things that we were discussing the other night here at the clinic i've seen two or three incidents this week where guys being on big skis were saved by the big skis had they been on short skis you know we'd have been picking them up out of the water or you know it had been a the old-fashioned yard sale yeah exactly so you know along with those bigger skis came more control more safety and as you started introducing those things then you know at the same time you had boats progressing and they've you know they're a thousand pounds heavier than they used to be they're a couple hundred horsepower stronger than they used to be you know the props are more efficient everything's building on itself but if you didn't have that if you took out one any one link in this chain if you will if we had never experienced that transition to the bigger skis I believe other things would have not progressed like they have.
0: It almost seems like you're reading my notes for a second because one of of the things that I want to touch upon is is the history of your involvement in the sport and your ascendancy around about the year of 1995, uh, which is where you won your first Pro Tour stop. But, you know we see you today we see you out there on the jump skis we see you riding around we see you taking jumps you look rock solid almost infallible but in the early part of your stay here at bennett's as you started to become the jumper that you are now there were certainly a few setbacks like i don't know the 27 times that 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 you that that you ate it a little bit as you explained last night
2: well you know and again it's i think for a lot of the generation of of younger skiers today they don't understand um how commonplace crashes were you know when i mean if you were a professional jumper at the age of 27 or 28 you were ancient you know because guys were just getting pounded and beaten up you know the ramps were steeper the the skis were more dangerous the conditions that we jumped in were more dangerous um you know, my my example was was probably a little extreme, um, and you know we had um, uh, Swanson, John Swanson yeah. was probably kind of known as the Crash King. Um, possibly, I think he was probably even worse than I was. I think he had uh, ten or eleven in one year. Um, I averaged uh, twenty seven. In uh, sorry, I averaged nine for three years. I think I had 10 one year, eight one year, and nine one year in those first three years. But again, my, my reasoning for that was a little bit different in that, yes, I had a, you know, go for it attitude, but I was also on a bit of a condensed timeline in that I only had a certain amount of time to either succeed and, and start making a little money doing this, or I was going to be, you know, doing something else with my, for my career. So, um, but, you know, we were jumping in Australia at Moomba, which is probably one of the most challenging facilities in all of the world to, to ski in. And we were, you know, you'd go over there and go behind outboards, Mm -hmm. hand driving, you know, I mean, it was, you, you were shaking in your boots before you even got on the water. And then you had to deal with currents, you know, people throwing things at you, you know, water conditions that were crazy ramps that you hadn't practiced on, you know, there was stuff written on the ramps you, you know it was just a, a weird combination of things
0: you're at the you're at the mercy of at least one or two or three things that could potentially go pear shaped for you
2: absolutely absolutely and so so much of i think early jumping was uh you know half of it was how do i go farther and half of it was how do i survive right like we just you know so again you know when you and, and you know you mentioned scott ellis and and the amount of things that his his fingerprint has been on in terms of things that we were doing with ski flying and ski technology. And, you know, a lot of the changes that we've seen in, in the ramps over the years. Um, he has been there all, all in every step as we've gone through this, as this sport has continued to progress and evolve. Maybe he wasn't always the front man, but you can be sure he was always involved in all of those steps. So um, I always kind of enjoy I, you know, Scotty's kind of my, the guy I'm hanging my hat on in terms of, you know, when people are asking me, you know, how long can you do this? What, You know, I'm, I'm always kind of looking out of the corner of my at Scotty, you know, like, well, he's still doing it. I can go with him, you know. Um, but it's it, it, sometimes it's amazing to me when I look back. It seems like the careers happen so fast. You know, it's been 20, we're going on 27 years of professional skiing. It's a long, it's a long time, way longer than I ever thought I would have been able to do this. And and the amount that this sport has progressed and changed has been overwhelming, but at the same time, it man, it feels like a the flash of you know just a blink of an eye.
0: Take us back a little bit to 1995 because I mean every because most people point to that year where like Freddy Krueger became Freddy Krueger right. type type deal, and I mean that season didn't really start all that well from Barnett Park in Orlando, and. The next tour stop was 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 at Champions Lake in Shreveport. Kinda of, kinda of take us a little bit through that story of how things shaped up there in Orlando and how things progressed to where you shocked the world.
2: So I mean to give that a little bit of history, you know, I had won some regional championships uh, in the boys' event. Um, you know, I was I was a good jumper in the Midwest, but I had I don't know that if I had even won a medal in a, you know, a top five medal at one of our national championships and especially not in the jump event, I maybe in tricks. So there was no reason for anybody to have ever heard of Freddy Krueger. I was, I was not on any junior teams. There was, there was really nothing significant about me. Um, in 94, I went to Shreveport, Louisiana for my first and I, I went there and I three quarter cut, um, and I, I actually missed the first round cut. I think they, they paid eight and I got ninth. And then uh in January of ninety five, I moved here to Bennett's uh following kind of Chris Sullivan. He and I had uh, become good friends at NLU. He was moving down here, uh NLU, which is now ULM mm-hmm. uh <laughs> for all the young people. Um Sully was was moving back here to Bennett's and gonna go to L S U and um I had met uh, who was going be, to become my future wife, Karen True Love, and I had a semester together at NLU. She was leaving and going back to UNC. Um, so I, I decided uh, if I could talk my folks into it, I was going to split and come down here to Jay's as well. So we came in and I started skiing that January of 95 with Jay and Sully. And for two months, they wouldn't let me go over the ramp, which was... I couldn't wrap my head around that I had never what am I why am I just riding my skis around what am I possibly gonna learn and it was really like that karate kid thing right like wax on wax off The old
0: mr. Miyagi huh yeah.
2: and they and it, literally they treated me like that like they didn't they weren't giving me the light at the end of the tunnel I was just you're gonna kill yourself so before you do let's learn how to ride your skis young you know young grasshopper so uh, fast forward we're you know, we're coming through March and I'm still not getting to jump hardly at all. And the first pro tournament, I think was early April, about April 10th there, uh, down at Barnett park in, in Orlando. And Jay said, I'm going to let you go and you can three quarter cut, but you, you can't double cut. And I'm just thinking, you know, yeah, great. Let's make it harder, you know, to, to go down here and succeed. And again, I got this clock in the back of my head, just tick, 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 tick. So I go down there and I three quarter cut. And uh, I remember Jim Clooney kind of as I skied into the dock kind of giving me a head nod like, you know Hey, that was that was pretty good, you know, and it was these guys were my idols It was very encouraging for him to be encouraging to me and uh, so that that tournament they I got eighth Uh, they paid seven And took seven to the second round, right? So there's there's a a reoccurring theme here. So we came home um, started jumping I broke the 200 foot mark at a record tournament here at Jay's. Um, and then we went to Shreveport, which was the second tour stop. in in that 1995 season. And so I rolled into that event with some confidence. I was skiing well, um, starting to kind of figure out what was going on here, made it through the first round, went into the finals. And I think I was, you know, and I, we had multiple rounds of cuts that year. So I think I was about the third or fourth to last. Um, and I popped off a big one uh, again for that time I, I think I went two hundred and four feet or something like that in that ballpark um, and I had Bruce Neville after me I believe and then uh, you know the greatest jumper of all time Sammy Duvall was the last guy off the dock and if you know if you anybody ever got to see that video the the way I, they announced my you know I was winning after Sammy's last two jump or first two jumps he had one jump left and he slid on the ramp, and we, you know, I knew I had won, and he got a rewrite. Ooh. And they bring him back down, and so there's this moment of, you're about to explode, you're about to celebrate, and oh my God, they just gave him one more jump. Like, you you don't give Sammy all
0: It's like winning the touchdown at the Super Bowl, and then you get thrown a flag.
2: Exactly, right? Like, I, and, and it was, there was just, and, but even in that moment, in my mind, I, I mean, I, I know everybody's supposed to say this, but I was, I couldn't believe I was gonna even be standing in the you know, in the shadow of, of these guys at that time. I mean I would never made a cut and now I'm I've I'm down to the last jump for the finals.
0: At least you were getting paid.
2: I was gonna get paid, exactly. And 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 I was important, honestly. I had to I had mom and dad toe tapping at home, you know, feeling like I was just wasting money here. So but he hit that last jump and it looked like he hit it and um Simon Hill was announcing that event who was you know, one of our guys here from Bennett's, I think one of the greatest announcers of all time. And when he, rather than say the distance, he just screamed over the microphone, Freddy Krueger, you are the winner. And you know, of course we went nuts. And and I remember Sammy Duvall having the class that he had as we were all acting like idiots, that he came in, took the time to wait, shook my hand, Bruce Neville, all of those guys were so respectful. But in a, in an instant, I went from a name that no one knew for any reason to who in the hell is this kid that just beat you know the best of the best and it had to have been a fluke and immediately I remember on the drive home um, I was being driven home and I remember on that drive home about halfway home there was just this voice in my head that just said everything just changed you're no longer a nobody but now you can't you can't stop you can't be the guy that won one and disappeared into the shadows and so that season that 95 season was um i mean it was it was magical and it was stressful and it was a i went through experiences you know i had friends that i never knew i had
1: right
2: (laughs) i met people and and i you i could walk into a room and it was the first time that i felt like i walked into a room and people saw me and they recognized me and i mean it was all these amazing feelings oh yeah then you know, you fast forward that into the reality of ninety six, ninety seven. you don't win an event. And then all of a sudden you're walking back into a room and nobody's excited you're there anymore. Right? Like all of a sudden I was starting to realize this. It, it came and it went, I had it and I lost it kind of thing. And I, I think everybody deals with that differently. And I thank God every day that, um, when I was dealing that with that, I was here because again, if, if there's anything, I think that Jay Bennett has brought to this sport, um, At least for me, and and I think the athletes that have worked with him, as much as anything, it was the psychology of dealing with not only having to deal with the psychology of of failing, but the psychology of of winning, of succeeding, and then having to do that again, and how much pressure that can create for people. So, you know, there were, I I tell my kids, you make a thousand different decisions every day in your life, right? You know, what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? But you'll look back in your life. And three or four or five decisions will set you on paths that will take you to, to places you can't even imagine. And so my time here, that decision to follow Chris Sullivan and to come here, that was one of those forks in the road that I can't even tell you why I was so sure I wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. But the fact that I did it obviously changed the course of my life
0: yes indeed because i mean you come from humble beginnings i mean you lived in decatur i actually had occasion to actually drive through decatur illinois like years and years ago and i mean i don't know if i if i can be really too disparaging about what decatur has to offer but i mean it's mainly industrial it's mainly agricultural industrial and there isn't an awful lot that that is there for someone who is young and ambitious so the pressure was obviously there for you to kind of get out of there and actually make something of yourself. Wouldn't you say, is that is that correct?
2: Well, the, the thing was, is I mean, the reality is, is that, I mean, there were a lot of great jobs, brilliant people, I mean, amazing. There were great opportunities in Decatur, Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, but there weren't great opportunities in Decatur, Illinois for skiing. I mean, could I have grown up and been a, a lawyer or an executive at, Staley's or ADM or Caterpillar, you know, big name companies that. Would, oh yeah, absolutely. Somebody was going to do it, right? Could have been me. Could have been them. But there was, and and a lot of the people that I graduated high school with, or you know, when and they were going to grow outside of Decatur, whatever. You know, obviously Chicago is just a, a couple hours north. Uh, Springfield, you know. If were, you
0: want to get into politics, Springfield, yeah.
2: Yeah, you know, there, there were there were places to go and things to do, but I. And again, I, I can't tell you what it was about the sport, but there was, I, to me, there was something that just, there was a calling to, that I knew I wanted to be involved with this sport. I wanted to be good at something. I wanted to be great at something. And so I couldn't find that I had necessarily the intelligence or the drive or whatever to be the greatest engineer in Decatur, Illinois, or the greatest executive. And those weren't things that, that you know, were calling to me. And at the end of the day, I'm five foot eight. I wasn't going to be the greatest basketball player in that area. Right. You know, so skiing was that opportunity and it was whatever that was. There was something in me that I just wanted to be the best at something. And skiing was that path And it. And I knew that path was going to lead me away from that area. And and that's what, you know, it inevitably brought me to Louisiana, then to here and then over to Florida.
0: And obviously, uh, and, and I mean, I know that you went to LSU. You graduated with a master's in business administration from the Flores program at, at, at LSU. Mm-hmm. So you have that back up to go up.
2: Bachelors, b-
0: or bachelors, or, or in a bachelors, yeah. bachelors in marketing. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I was confusing no, that, no, but
2: yeah. I appreciate your confidence in me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you can go back and get your Flores MBA from uh, from from LSU. But I mean. I mean, so how important was that for you to have that kind of backup just in case things didn't quite pan out the way you wanted it to?
2: Well, um, you know, that was something that was, I mean, my parents were big on education. Um, they, that was something through their generation that they were learning. And again, um, you know, I credit both of my parents with having the foresight to, to look up and see that just doing things the same old way wasn't going to work in the future so they were that was instilled in all of us that we were to get an education and and give ourselves the best chance to succeed um the reality is in terms of you know when i was in lsu i was i had started i i i think i would have really enjoyed either being engineering or or law those were kind of the two and still today those are the things that that interest me the most Um, what happened with engineering was it, when I was at NLU, they had a pre-engineering class. I didn't hit it off with my first teacher in there, and I I bailed. And and by the time I got here, there was no I couldn't I was too distracted, and I wasn't going to be able to handle engineering at LSU. Um, so that was then. I migrated in. I was good at math, so I migrated into accounting. Um, I got into that about a year and a half, and I just it wasn't going to be me. I I couldn't see myself. Uh, you know, I have all the respect in the world for accountants. I have an accountant. I love accountants. But man, I wasn't going to be able to be that guy that could just look at the numbers all day, every day and get excited about it. Um, so I switched. I walked into my counselor's office and I said, what gets me out of school fastest? They said marketing or, or finance. I said, M- I'm, I'm a marketing kind of guy. So I graduated with that marketing degree so that I could essentially get out of school as quickly as I could to go ahead and get into you know, that world of skiing. But to your point, you know, my dad used to say, you're always one jump away from doing something else. So make sure you got a backup plan. And again, when I started this at 19 years old, nobody had ever made it to 30 as a pro skier. And then Sammy kind of got into his early thirties, had the, 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 uh, eardrum injuries there with the little, all the little bones in the ears that were messing with his balance. Right.
0: And he also took a really, really nasty injury at the Movement Masters one year, you know, which which held him back, I believe.
2: Yeah, but that, I mean that was that was earlier in his career. The the it was the the ear thing was kind of what got him out because he, he basically he lost his sense of balance there and mm-hmm. he you know it, I I can't imagine what he was going through because physically he felt great, but it it wasn't until he got on his skis and then all of a sudden you know all of a sudden I've got no balance on my skis or I can't quite get my kick or, you know it was frustrating for him. You could you could see it there at the end but then, you know, Bruce Neville made it till he was 37. And again, I mean, these are this is these it's crazy. We we never thought that we were going to last that long. So um, you know, here I am now about to turn 46 and I'm I'm still doing this and enjoying it but the opportunities it's afforded me is through that time, I've been able to create relationships in the industry. I'm getting to work with you know, innovation controls which is zero off and, and the screens that we see in the votes, you know, Mastercraft and OJ and D three skis and um, Eagle wetsuits and master line. So now I'm getting to, to be where I'm getting to tinker and play with some of the products that, you know, people are enjoying out there. So what am I doing? I'm I'm you know, it's it's all coming back around to where I'm getting to, to play with a little bit of that engineering and understanding, you know, both sides of the business, which I'm I'm enjoying this chapter for sure
0: all right so kind of going back a little bit to bennett and obviously the experience there wasn't all business it wasn't all like training all of the time or or just like really really being strict straight down the nose serious you had times with uh, with your fellow competitors that were training uh, in that little cadre you know so if i read off a few a few things that uh, that some of you were up to let's start with levy jumping
2: um i take no responsibility for starting the levy jumping that was all done before my time but i did participate in it um again one of the very things that attracted me to my wife is as far as i know she may be the only woman that actually ever tried it there i'm not saying there weren't other women there weren't any other women that i ever saw do it um and so levy jumping was uh (laughs) i don't know how much of this we should divulge Between Lake 2 and 3, there was obviously a a small levee that separated the lakes, and we would build a mud ramp, and you'd get on your trick ski, and we would whip you at that mud ramp as fast as humanly possible with a six-liter boat at the time, and you would hit this ramp, and the goal was to fly over the dirt, land in the water, and ski to the other side of Lake 3. and Inevitably, you know, man, some of the fall, we were very fortunate that we didn't truly hurt anybody or break anything but um, so many people would be losing a little bit of control from the whip and of course the driver was never really your ally he was trying to kill you so um, but you know we got I, I think Brian Swinson actually made a front flip off the the levee ramp and, and skied away from it you know we there was it got silly for sure but um, but yeah we there were and well you got a list I'll let you go through the list
0: and that is where the next episode will pick up from talk about a cliffhanger. Thanks again to Bennett and mastercraft for bringing Freddie to Tri lakes for the pro clinic. thus providing an opportunity for this great interview. Be sure to
1: catch part two in the next episode. Thank you for listening to the TWBC podcast. Be sure to check out our website at waterskibroadcasting.com links to our presence on major social media platforms can be found there as well as updates to our webcast and this podcast. Duplication or rebroadcasting of this broadcast without written consent of TWBC is prohibited. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and be sure to join us next time for the next edition of the TWBC Podcast.